Hello. Jeez Louise. That was <laughs> too much. That was a trial. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Uh welcome back to the Weirdest Thing Podcast. Yes. Uh, I'm your host, Scotty Milder. Yes, and I am also your host, Amelia Ampuero. And we're here to tell you about the weird, strange, uh, incredible. Things. awful things we find on the internet yeah <laughs> sounds like you may be in the awful camp this week so. i'm a little bit in the awful camp i'm yeah. a little bit in the bummer camp this week yeah, my, yeah mine is like a little bit little split a little splitsville on mine okay. but, uh we're gonna so because you're you 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 announced before we started that you're in the um your, your story is i guess a bit of a bummer so yeah uh we we announced we we talked last time about how since we're in award season we're going to be kind of spending the next few episodes kind of touching base on movie stuff yes uh, and i think we're going to do that at the end of the episode because it sounds like we might need a little bit of a palate cleanser yeah we need we need that you know little the yeah. dollop of sorbet to kind of right. move although, away from mine although one of the movies i'm going to talk about that i recently saw well actually two of the movies uh, both I of the movies are bummers but <laughs> i don't think us talking about yeah them but i'm also going to talk about barbie so you know that'll yeah happen. there we go um but uh but yeah so i guess i'm starting this week so i'll go ahead and dive yes. in beautiful so um i'm gonna give a little bit of a setup and then i'll and then actually the way i'm telling my story this week's a little different but i'm gonna give the setup first so let me just put it this way so okay. if you were to talk to like a real like punk rock music nerd, like a musicologist. So okay. About what bands from the 1970s like really set the stage, like created the sound that would become punk rock. Oh. You know, they would tell you like, well, clearly uh, like the MC5 or okay. Iggy and the Stooges. Okay. But like someone who was like in the know would be like, well, also like the band Death. Okay. Like clearly death. Um, now, if you were to talk to like a real headbanger from like uh, the 1980s, like what band invented death metal? They'd be like, well, obviously death. Okay. And you'd be like, well, how does that make sense? Well, the right. thing is I'm talking about two different bands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this week I'm actually talking about two different bands called death. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> and in the interest of actually uh, kind of keeping this a little on the short short side, mm-hmm. I'm actually going to do two movie reviews. Uh, so I only have three sources this week. Okay. I'm going to talk about two different documentaries about two different bands called Death. Beautiful. Um, so the first, the documentary is called A Band Called Death. It's directed by Mark Christopher Covino and Jeff Howlett. It's from 2012. It's from Draft House Films. And the second is Death by Metal, directed by Philippe Belal-Cazar from 2016, and that's from Mental Pictures. And then I just kind of fill in some details from Wikipedia. Beautiful. So like I said, I'm going to kind of approach this a little different. I'm not going to like get real hung up on like dates and like details. Like if you guys really want to like get into the weeds about these bands, there's a lot of information out there. I'm going to kind of just do a generalized overview of the bands, Um, but I'm really going to talk about these cool okay so a band called death death uh were uh, composed of three brothers 
uh, from Detroit, Michigan. They formed in 1971. The brothers were David Hackney on guitar, Bobby Hackney on bass and vocals, and Dennis Hackney on drums. Um, interesting thing about these, they were from Detroit. Uh, Detroit, obviously. Detroit, 1971. What do you, what music do you associate with Detroit in the 1970s? 1970s is hard. I hear Detroit and I think Motown. Motown. But right? that's, I, that Motown was a little bit earlier, right? Yeah, but st- I mean, we're still basically in the Motown. And that, you're yeah. thinking of like the Jackson 5. And thinking, oh, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What's interesting is the Hackney Brothers were black. Okay. But they were not doing Motown. They Fantastic. Were raw garage punk. Beautiful. Like Proto punk. Before punk was punk. <laughs> um, but they were like a straight up rock and roll band. Uh, the leader of the band was David Hackney. He was the third of four brothers. Uh, their oldest brother, Earl, was like not in the band. Okay. What I just was... wonder if he was like, I don't want to be in your band, guys. <laughs> well, what's great about the documentary? So the documentary um, is fantastic. This is okay. one of the best music documentaries you're ever going to see. Um, I talked about Sixto Rodriguez last year mm-hmm. and Searching for Sugar Man. Like, this is tonally, this is very much in that kind of similar vein. Okay. The thing about that just really struck me about this documentary is like the warmth of this family. Mm, okay. It starts with. So, um, spoiler alert, uh, David Hackney, he was the leader of the band. He has passed away. Okay. But Bobby and uh, Dennis, they're still they're still living. And it starts with the two of them kind of like back in their old neighborhood. They're talking. It's, I, I didn't write down who they were, but like a couple members of their family. And they're just kind of standing around joking like, I oh, remember that band we had death. <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God, you guys were so loud. <laughs> Yes. And, like you see them talking to their mom, who at the time, at, at one point in the documentary, she does pass away. She was elderly, but oh, like, yeah. you see them talking to her, and you just see this family just loves each other. They talk about how, like, their dad was a Baptist preacher. He was also, mm. like, an electrical lineman. Wow. But, like, you know, their parents, like, introduced them to music. They talk about how their dad, like, sat them down one day and, like, made them watch the Beatles, like, on the Ed Sullivan show. And how they were always like their parents were like dancing to Aretha Franklin, like and really oh, man. stuff, and like how their parents just like supported them and supported mm-hmm. their music. And how I think they said there was I'm trying to remember I didn't like I said I didn't write down a lot of notes this time. I'm just kind of going off of having watched the documentary. But like at some point I think there was an accident or something, and so they came by some money. Okay. And the parents are like, all right, what do you guys want? And the and the brothers were like, take us to the music store. So the they went and like uh Dennis was like, I want the drums. And both like David and Bobby were like, We want guitars. <laughs> so yeah. they like, you know, they went and they were all like teenagers at the time. Um, and their first band, it was called Rockfire Funk Express. Yes. <laughs> and I think it was uh Bobby who was the bassist and vocalist from the band. He was like, We didn't really know. Like, did we want to be like a rock band? Did we want to be a funk band? Like we mm-hmm. were still kind of figuring it out. But then like David saw the who and was ah. like, That's what we're gonna do. Mm-hmm. So it's like they talk about how they set up and they were practicing in their bedroom and like they turned the amplifier to like point out the window basically just a blast out the neighborhood (laughs) and how like basically just to like annoy the neighborhood 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're like, you know, here we are. You know, everyone is playing Motown at the time. Right. And like, no, we're playing this white boy music. We're playing this rock and roll, you know? Yeah. Um, Their signature song, uh, one of their signature songs is a song called Keep On Knocking. And they kind of have two explanations for the song. One was like, they're playing the song and a bunch of girls came by and were like knocking on the door because they wanted to come in. But then the other explanation is someone called the cops. <laughs> the <laughs> cops were knocking. <laughs> basically turned that down <laughs> one is um, very like keep yeah. on coming gals and the other is like keep on knocking cops yeah. we're not answering the door that's amazing <laughs> but what's great is like the thing is like and you, you hear because they have like an eight track like tape player mm-hmm. and you hear them like developing their sound and particularly david is like really developing this fast kind of buzzsaw guitar sound Mm-hmm. And this is before punk. Like again, like he's really going off of like Pete Townsend from The Who. Mm-hmm. And and I think at one point he had a quote where he was like, "If I can like you know learn to play chords like Pete Townsend and like solo like Jimi Hendrix, he's like I'll be the perfect guitar player." Mm-hmm. And like that was his goal. Okay. So they're like, you know, they're really learning to be this band together, and their parents are totally supportive, even you know and. This struck me as, like, maybe the difference between, like, the black church and the white church. Because, mm-hmm. like, I've talked about, like, my mom's family where, uh, you know, they were Baptists. Mm-hmm. I don't think this would have flown in my mom's family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, like, yeah. they talk about, like, how, like, their mom, you know, they let, she let them, like, just blast out the neighborhood. But it was, like, between three and six, this is your time to, like, you know, after six, it's like, okay, you're done. You know? Right, right. But, you know, you see them, like, you know, and you hear it through, like, the tape, you know, these, like, old, like, eight-track tape recordings. Like, you hear them really becoming this really tight, good band. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, I think they were still going by Rockfire Funk Express. I don't even think they, like, had a gig or anything. But um, at one point, I think it's Bobby says like well i think both bobby and dennis kind of talk about this where they come home and like david is like oh no sorry i'm lying so unfortunately their father died um he was killed in an accident Mm -hmm. and they talk about basically because like i said he was a lineman like an electrical lineman and there was this freak accident where they were up doing doing something on an electrical line and the person he was working with like accidentally shocked himself and his father was like trying to rush him to the hospital and they ended up getting hit by a drunk driver and their father was killed instantly and this like obviously was tremendous because it sounds like they were just this incredibly close family yeah this was like deeply traumatic for the entire family and everyone said like it was especially traumatic for david and so one day the Two brothers, Bobby and Dennis, come home. And David's like, I got an, an idea for the name for the band. And they're like, and he was like so excited. They're like, what is it? What is it? He's like, death. And they're like, um, uh. And he had this whole like spiritual kind of reason for it. It's like death is yeah. just like a thing. It's like death is just like birth and like, you know. Yeah. But he was like adamant. Like that's the name of the band is death. So they recorded some demos and they took it. Uh, they talk about how he took, they opened the yellow pages to like the music section mm-hmm. and like taped it to the wall or like thumbtacked it to the wall and he took a dart and threw it at the yellow pages and he hit the section for Groovesville Records. He's like, that's where we're going. Okay. 
Grizzville Records was owned by a producer, a guy named Don Davis, who was like really well known. He had worked with like artists like Aretha Franklin and the Dramatics. He's a Motown guy. Okay. But they took their demos into Grizzville. And like, this is not the type of music that <laughs> Grizzville is known for. But I forgot to write, I didn't write down the name of the guy, but he was the guy. It sounds like he was like the executive who worked under Don Davis. I think it was Brian something was his name. Okay. And he listened, he's like, this is amazing stuff. He's like, I want to book you guys. And we're going to get you in here and like really record some like professional demos. And he got them in. He booked them, essentially booked them time uh, in their actual studio. And they essentially recorded an album. And they took it to uh, Don Davis. And Don Davis was like, are you crazy? We can't release this. Mm. He was like, we can't put out an album by a band named Death. Like, nobody's going to buy this. Okay. And so they were like trying, they were some sending the recordings around to like all these other labels, you know, it, like international labels. They sent it to Clive Davis at Columbia the, and they were getting either just straight up rejections from people who wouldn't even listen to it being like, we're not going to put out an album by a band named Death. Okay. <laughs> or like Clive Davis was like, this is great. We want to sign them. We'll give them $20,000. They have to change the name. Oh, and like um, Bobby and Dennis were like, yeah, let's change the name. And David was like, absolutely not. And basically was like, tell Clive Davis to go to hell. And this is like, this is Clive Davis. Wow. Like from Columbia Records. Yeah. (laughs) And and Bobby and Dennis, like they they talk about in the documentary, they're like, we had this like philosophy in our families, like back up your brother, back up your brother. So publicly, they're like, we backed up our brother. Privately, (laughs) we had a big old fight about it. (laughs) But David was like the leader of the band. It was his vision. And he was like, and he was like, at that point, he was mad at us, (laughs) you know, but he was like, no, he had this vision for what the band was what it meant he would not change the name so like finally Grizzville was like we're gonna release you guys we can't do anything with this mm. and uh david was like cool 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 can we at least have our masters which is like i mean i don't know if you remember the whole taylor swift controversy from a couple, like yeah. no one ever gives the masters back yeah but this brian guy uh who worked for don davis was like yeah We'll give you your masters because he believed in them so much. He's like, that's the least we can do is give you your masters. Yeah. So they were able to like do a pressing of like a single, a vinyl okay. single of two songs. It was uh, the songs Politicians in My Eyes and Keep on Knocking of like 500 copies. And they were trying to get it out. They were sending it to radio stations and they were getting some airplay, but it was like real sporadic. It was mm. in just around Detroit. Okay. But it was all like late at night and stuff. And it's like, because no one wanted to play anything by a band named Death. Okay. You know, and this is all around, I think this was all around 1975. So this is like before the remote, this is like, you know, the MC5 was a thing. Iggy and the Stooges were already kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But the Ramones hadn't hit. Punk was like a year or two away from like... You know, so like in a couple of years, you're going to have like bands like the germs, the farts, the, you know, like, right. You know, it, like in a year or two, it's actually not going to be that you probably wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But at right. this time, people are like, no, a band named Death, like, no, we're not going to do it. Yeah. It was just this anchor around their neck. Like they could not. And frankly, probably the fact that they were black didn't help. Like okay. the documentary 
kind of only touches on it, but it's like you have to imagine that there was some racism involved. You know, this I, is- I mean, even just a I, like not just, but even a thing of like, who do we sell this music to? Right. You know what I mean? Because it's a thing of like, yeah. this isn't quote unquote black music. So right. now there and- were other like what's interesting is, and I didn't go deeply into it, but like there are some other like Detroit garage bands at the time. Like there's a band called the Dirt Bombs that are kind of similar that like I think they're a mixed race band, but I know they had a black lead singer. Okay. Um, that were also kind of a proto-punk band. So it's not like it wasn't unheard of. But I mean, even now, mm-hmm. if you're white, you can travel across a, a lot of genre genres. Yes. If you are of a specific ethno or racial group, it's like, no, you have to do that kind of music. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's that. Well, and I'm going to talk about that here in a second. That that that's very much the case. Yeah, and I think I think that was you know I think the fact that they're black and the fact that they had this name Death was certainly yeah. it just wasn't helping them. So they finally got to this point where they were like, you know, they just weren't getting anywhere. They had a cousin who was like, "Why don't you come stay with me in New England? Like, have a change of scenery." And they talk about like they didn't even really know what that meant. They were like, "New England, like, what'd you do with the old England?" You know, <laughs> but like basically, they moved to Burlington, Vermont. Okay. And they were there for a while. They were still trying to keep the band name or the band going. So they walked around Burlington, Vermont, with like a bunch of band posters that just said "Death" with a triangle. And I'm, I won't go into it, but like the triangle is like the symbol for the band, and it's part of the whole spiritual meaning of the band. Yeah. So they're going on Burlington, Vermont, like tape or stapling up all these like posters that just say death to telephone poles. And like the cops are coming right behind them and ripping them down because yeah. they're like, they think it's a street game. And so they go to Who them. Who made flyers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so yep. they go, they go to the band and they're like, we don't, we don't have street gangs here and this is a nice town, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, we're not a street gang. This is, we're like a band. This is our musical band. And they're like, well, you better change that name. We're not, and they're like, oh my God, the name again. Jesus. Christ. Yeah. So like they ended up finally changing the name. I think they were like, they became the fourth foundation at some point. Okay. And one thing about them is they were always like very much like rooted in actually their religion. Now in the lyrics to death, like the music death, the band death, it's not super obvious, but like I said, it was like David Hackney had this kind of spiritual idea of what it meant and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, when they became the fourth foundation, they became, it was like loud kind of punk music, but with like almost like gospel lyrics. Okay. But then it became like, we like the music, but take the preaching out of the music. Ugh. And they were like, we can't, we can't fucking do that. Okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so David, he just got super discouraged. He was homesick for Detroit. Mm. And he was like, I'm, I'm out of here. And he, he, he wanted to move back. But at this point, Bobby was married. I think he had a kid on the way. Oh, wow. Okay. In Burlington. They were like, you know, they were kind of ready to just, I think Bobby and Dennis were kind of ready to just move on. And they're like, we like our life here. We don't want to go back to Detroit. David, it sounds like, kind of felt betrayed by that. Mm. So he just, he went back to Detroit. Bobby and uh, Dennis stayed. 
they ended up starting a reggae band called Lamb's Bread. And it's funny because at one point you see them, they're on stage performing probably in Burlington and they're playing, they're performing this song called, I think it's like Fire Up That Ganja. And then it cuts to like all these like white, like Burlington hippies, like dancing. And it's like, yeah, I guess you guys found your niche. Like, yep. Um, yep. It's like good. I mean, they were good. They're a good reggae band. Like, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I guess David felt like pretty betrayed that they were like abandoned rock and roll. So he went back, he ended up getting married and it sounds like he had a, like a happy marriage to his wife. They interviewed his wife a little bit, but he did develop a drinking problem. He really never kind of got his act together. He was a chain mm. smoker and you just see this like kind of like downward spiral with mm. him over the years. It kind of ended with him around 2000. They show, uh, I guess Dennis got married. David came out to film his wedding. He was really not doing well. Mm. He made some comment like after this, you're going to, I think to his mother, he said something like after this, you're going to have to bury one of your sons. Turns out he had like advanced lung cancer and he died in October of 2000. Um, okay, so I was texting you today. Yes. Get real choked up during this. So the band was pretty much forgotten, but like weirdly, like not entirely. So like okay. the single, they had pressed the single, you know, this uh, knocking, right. uh, keep on knocking, politicians in my eyes, 500 copies, single, that became kind of known in like punk rock nerd circles. Like weirdly, I heard of them mm. when I lived in Boston. Like, okay. So this would have been 2006-ish. Because I remember I was at a party, it was just a side, but like short little story, but like I remember being at a party and it was like a friend of a friend, this insufferable hipster who was like in this like noise punk band. He was like uh, studying at the Berkeley College of Music, I think. Okay. We were sitting around, we were talking about like music and I think I was trying to show like, I know what I'm talking about. So I said something about like Bad Brains being the first black punk band. And he was like, well, actually, there was this band called Death that was before them. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, Death is a death metal band. Who obviously, I'm going to get to in a minute. He was like, no, I'm talking about a different band. And I was like, whatever, nerd. You know, I bet everybody around you was like. I think it was like the two of us in the corner. And everyone had fucked off and left us alone a long time before that. Everyone was all. Um, yeah. I know, I'm, like, I'm acting like he's the insufferable dork. But I was fully <laughs> engaged in this conversation. But like. But I remember him just being like, I'm talking about a different band. And I'm like, whatever. And then like six years later, this documentary comes out. I was like, oh, the insufferable like dork was right. Like, yeah, there was this other band. Yeah. Um, so I had heard like apparently they were like some people knew about them. Okay. Well, so they get into it in the documentary, like Joe Biafra, who the, he was the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. He's talking about it like he's famously got this collection of like every punk single and album ever made mm. and he's going through a bunch of his vitals and but he had the death single and he's like talking and the, there's this whole like you know network of people who are like trading things online this is around 2008 and people start talking about it on like message boards and then someone posted on ebay and it's selling for like 800 dollars. okay and again, nobody, and like the guys, like the two remaining brothers, they have no, they're doing their lambs, bread, reggae. They have no. Right. Well, meanwhile, uh, Bobby Jr., uh, who's the bassist and vocalist, he had three sons, um, or Bobby Hackney, he had three sons, Bobby Jr., Julian, and Yuring. And they're all like, they're all like kind of punk records. Like at one point, they're, I don't remember which one, but is wearing an Earth Crisis t shirt, which is like famous, this like hardcore kind of metalcore band. Okay. And they're like, 
in college talking to like some again like some probably insufferable like punk rock hipsters who were like yeah there was this band called death like back who like and like and someone had ripped the um the single and put it on line and they're playing it and i think bobby jr is like that's my like that sounds like my dad and he's like and he's like the hackney brothers and he calls his dad and he's like dad were you were you guys in this band like it was like or he was like Oh, no, he was like, Dad, people are playing your music at like underground parties. And, uh-huh. and his dad was like, What, Lamb's Bread? Like, like the reggae stuff? He's like, No, like, were you in a band called Death? And he was like, Wait, what? And he was like, Yeah, they're playing your song, Politicians in My Eyes, and Keep on Knocking. And like, literally, he hadn't thought of these songs in like 30 years. Wow. He's like, Wait, what? <laughs> and so, like, the stuff's being rediscovered. Yeah. And so, like, basically bobby's sons started uh, their own punk band which they called rough francis okay this is where i got super choked up because rough francis was the name that david hackney when he had gone back to detroit and he was kind of trying to do solo stuff and he had actually Mm -hmm. recorded a couple things just on his own he went by the name rough francis and so they started a punk band called rough francis like and they perform on stage covering that song Ugh. he said it's like talking to my uncle Ugh. because you know he said uncle bobby was like my favorite uncle he was like super funny he's like but i never knew him in his prime because yeah he's like always like every time i was around him he's like always really funny and everything but he was always drunk yeah um, so he's like this is like talking to my uncle bobby Ugh. um they managed to get a new york times article about it wow um the brother of joey ramon i always forget his name i always feel bad because he's got he's like his own like um super like well-known musician um but he invited rough francis to play at his birthday party and said and i want death to play too Uh. well the guys from death uh bobby and dennis are like we haven't played these songs in forever and they were like real reluctant to play but they went to their guitarist from lamb's bread and they were like do you think you could play these songs he's like i'm gonna do my best and he's a reggae musician but he's like yeah. i'm gonna do my best i'm gonna try and honor your brother and so they started to rehearse and he said and he was like let's just try keep on knocking he's like that's our easiest song and they got like four chords in and the brother stopped and the guitarist, I, I didn't write down his name. He was like, did I do something wrong? And he looked and the two brothers were crying because he's like, uh, he sounds just like David. <laughs> so oh my like, God. And like, I think Bobby was like, I had to leave the room. He's like, uh, I had to go cry. He's like, I don't know what this, and he was like, God, I don't know what this is. Yeah. But like, this is something. So like, they went and per- they went and played at um, Joy Ramon's brother. Sorry, brother, his name I'm forgetting. They went and played at his birthday party. And then this kind of like prompted the documentary, which I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like I looked it up. So Rough Francis is still playing today. They their last album came out, I think, in 2020. Amazing. Um, and then Death, like they actually started recording again. And like ah. I think I'm not sure what they're doing now because it looks like their last album was 2015. But they totally got rediscovered. Um, because like they're now i mean i remember when because i saw the documentary when it came out mm-hmm. and they they're now like sort of accepted as like one of the great kind of proto-punk bands wow time. but yeah but anyway so back to like the movie review like it's just such a great 
Like, like I said, it's the family relationship is really the core. It's just yeah. this brotherly relationship is so powerful. Yeah. Um. So, so where that's can the, you where can you find it? I watched it on freebie. Um, it's weirdly not on okay. like Amazon or Netflix. Okay. But it is on freebie, and it was like easy. To, I like it was for free. It was broken up by ads, but. I hate the ads on freebie too because somebody will be like, and then he told me, and it's all, do you struggle yeah, like with dirty dishes? And you're sense. like, what is happening? Right. You could have found a better time. Yeah. But amazing. Good to know it's there. Yeah. So okay. it's it's really it's one of the best rock documentaries out there. And like I would say it's a great double feature with Searching for Sugar Man. Okay. Because they're both like undiscovered Detroit musicians. Oh yeah. That had this like second life you know yeah absolutely um okay so second second band called death yes (laughs) and i'll try to make this one a little bit shorter because like i feel like like i know we have one listener who is gonna like fact check me on everything death metal (laughs) because i know we have at least one headbanger with actually no i know we have two okay um (laughs) so this is for you guys okay literally the two of you i think (laughs) (laughs) but like for a lot of our listeners, they probably have like a like narrower bandwidth for death metal talk. So probably. So I won't spend as much time on this. Also, like right. this documentary is nowhere near as good. Okay. Like, so Death by Metal, directed by Philippe Belalcazar, 2016, Mental Pictures. It's about the band again called Death. Um, who are I mentioned them if you remember way back on the Choose Dolly episode. I think so. Yeah, because when I was talking about the, um, you know, like the difference between all these different subgenres, that was so focused on black metal. Um, okay. But I didn't mention death metal. And specifically, there's this like pretty dumb and not very interesting controversy amongst fans about who the first official death metal band is. Like some people say it's Possessed because they put out the album Seven Churches in 1985. And then other people say, no, it's Death because they put out Scream Bloody Gore in 1987. And that's the real first death metal. And I'm like, "Uh, no one really cares. But like, if you're going to ask me, I think Scream Bloody Gore is is more death metal than seven churches but whatever okay for our purposes like death is the first death metal man okay all right anyway um uh so chuck shoulder was born 1967 in long island new york nice uh young jewish boy his mom converted Okay. Um, but his dad, I think, son of Austrian immigrants. The documentary does not touch on it. And it's part of the problem with the documentary is the documentary is like weirdly. I mean, death metal is already like a subject that doesn't let a lot of people in if you're not already into it. And this okay. documentary doesn't even try. Like, I'm mm. I actually am interested in death metal. And this documentary was like holding me at arm's length. Okay. It's like assuming I knew a bunch of stuff that I didn't know okay like at one point it's like and then like uh james joined the band but he and chuck had a falling out and so and i'm like who the fuck is james and like (laughs) i never found out who james was like it's just like (laughs) but and and the documentary does that all i hate it yeah when people do that i don't know who this random person is that you're talking about it will do this thing where it's like where is like a band called death about i'm gonna call them death prime the the first band i was talking about okay uh a band called death is very much focused on these brothers and it's like 
you know who everybody is that's talking and it's right you know very much about these relationships this documentary death by metal is very much like talking head documentary and people will pop up and then like it won't tell you who the person is like you don't even get the little chiron saying who it is or it'll come, come at the on. very end of their interview for like half a second You're like wait who <laughs> the fuck? what who like, is this yeah it's very amateurish in that way like okay. and, and and it's got like you know it's got these like kind of cool like animated like transitions and stuff but then it's like really shitty microphone quality for like half of the interview so it's like okay. okay you've got these cool animated transitions but you couldn't like invest in a fucking microphone no because they spent their money on the cool animated transitions yeah it was really frustrating so as a documentary it gets better as it goes okay. <laughs> i will say because there's some interesting Chuck Schuldiner is, an in, whether you're into death metal or not, he's an interesting dude. And it was actually kind of interesting to compare him to David Hackney in the sense of like these uncompromising dudes who are kind of their own worst enemy in some ways. Mm-hmm. Because like, so like I said, David Hackney, like he could have had this $20,000 deal from Clive Davis, but he would right. not change the band name. Right. Uh, oh, and one interesting thing is, like like I said, back to the first documentary, you know, the brothers are talking about, like, we wanted to change the name and we had this fight with him about it, blah, blah, blah. At the end, I think it's Bobby Hackney is saying, like, you know, he never compromised. And, like, and he was like, now, and, like, at this point, I look back and I'm proud of him for it. And that's, oh. like, basically the last line of the documentary. <gasps> but, like, with Chuck, so one big difference between David Hackney and Chuck Schuldiner is, like, Chuck Schuldiner actually was, like, successful. Okay. In his little death metal-y world. Okay. So like I said, he was born in Long Island, New York. His family moved to Florida when he was one. Um, he was originally like inspired by like Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, but then he got super into like thrash metal, like Slayer and King Diamond and all those bands, right? Okay. He formed his first band, Mantis, in 1983 when he was 16. And then he moved when he was, let's see, 1986, so he would have been 19. He went moved to Toronto to join Slaughter, the thrash band, not the hair band. Okay. And then uh, very quickly moved back to Florida to form Death. But, like, this is, again, like, super confusing. Like, the, the documentary just, like, blows through all of this. It ha- It's just, like, it mentions Slaughter one time. And then it's, like, he moved back to, then he was in Florida. But then all of a sudden he's in California. But then he's back in Florida. And I'm just, like, wait, where is he? Like, what the fuck? It's just, like. What's happening? Okay. What's happening? It has no context for, and then it's, like, and then he invented death metal. And then it's just, like, go, and it has no context for what death metal is or, like, how it's different than other things. Okay. So, like. Again, not that anyone other than these two fans that I know are listening care, <laughs> but like what constitutes death metal? Like what qualifies something as death metal? Well, death metal is like known for it's like generally two guitarists, uh, low tuning, super heavy distortion. It's it's characterized by double bass drum blast beats. So it's like, like super fast okay. drumming, guttural and or shrieking vocals. So okay. this is the death growl. This is the the cookie monster vocals right? right and then often horror satanic themed lyrics now like we're not gonna I'm, again i'm not gonna focus too much on that but like part of what's interesting about chuck Schuldiner is like he kind of was part of what set the template for that and then he very quickly like i talk about my breakup of death metal all the time i'm not gonna go yep. through the story again <laughs> but um everyone has heard my like fucking the shit of the dead Story. Yes. Well, like Chuck Schuldiner, his first album was called Scream Bloody Gore. 
So like he was kind of he started off in the kind of fucking the shit of the dead <laughs> kind of territory of like you know and and he like was part of this what was called the Florida Death Metal Movement which was like all the bands like Cannibal Corpse, Obituary, Deicide, like all these bands that are known as like the Florida Death Metal American Death Metal Movement. Okay. Again, the documentary covers none of this. Okay, great. Like, just <laughs> you're just like no context for any of this. Like, it, inter- it inter- interviews like half of these guys, but again, it doesn't tell you who they are. Just like, here's another beardo guy in a leather jacket. Okay, cool, great. Okay. He's like, yeah, Chuck was really difficult to work with. And then, like, moves on to the next guy. <laughs> but, like, what was interesting about Chuck Schuldiner, and this is where it gets where the documentary does get more interesting is that, you know, Scream Bloody Gore came out in 1987. When we're talking about all these, like, bands like Obituary, Cannibal Corpse, you know, this, like, the wave of death metal bands that, you know, are sort of super popular, like, what I remember from high school. This is, like, 89 to maybe 92. Okay. So he was a couple years ahead of that. That's why they call him the godfather of american death metal because he kind of kicked off this florida wave but by the time all this was going on he had already moved on his you know his next album was called leprosy it was 1988 then he put out an album called spiritual healing in 1990 where he's already moving beyond the like uh fucking the shit of the dead stuff (laughs) um one thing that's like famous about chuck shoulder is that he couldn't keep a band together he was just constantly firing people uh because or like or like having falling outs with people like this mysterious james who like i never found out who it was but he did like he was he was apparently just really difficult to work with he also couldn't he couldn't finish a tour Mm. this was like where the the documentary starts getting interesting because it starts this is where i say it starts showing that he was kind of as both like an uncompromising artistic visionary if you want like if you have any respect for the genre at all um he did have an artistic vision Mm -hmm. and wouldn't compromise and was like constantly looking to evolve okay and also was kind of his own worst enemy so like he would go on these tours would have some sort of at some point someone describes him where they're just like he was just wound a little too tight so like he would just have these like blow-ups with people and like at one point i think it's the spiritual healing tour which is his third album he has a big falling out with like he's supposed to go on tour with a band creator which is a german band okay it's supposed to be this big european tour and he just freaks out decides not to go they're literally going to his house to get him to sign the contract for the tour and like the rest of the band and they're i think interviewing the drummer from the band at the time (laughs) like everyone they interviewed was like a former band member because right. he fired everyone at some point. And the guy's like, we were knocking on the door and we could see the blind go down and he's looking out at us and then he just wouldn't answer the door. And so finally they were like, they essentially signed the contract for like the rest of the band to go on tour and he just uh-huh. stayed behind. But then called like two weeks later, was like, no, I'm ready to go on tour now. But they're like, no, fuck you. Like you fucked Whoa. everyone over. Yeah. And like the band creator who was like the biggest band in Europe at the time were like, no, we don't want you. Cause you like caused all these problems. Yeah. So then he fires everyone in the band at that point. Cause they betrayed him and like, but they were like, yeah, fuck you. We don't want to deal with you anymore. And this is just right. like this constant story with him. But then after that, this is the other like kind of interesting part of the story is his next album, which came out in 1991 human. This is when like, cannibal corpse is huge 
you know, with like, you know, Cannibal Corpses, like they took the whole scream bloody gore ethic and just ran with it. But meanwhile, Chuck Trollner, he goes and hires these guys, Paul Masvidal and Sean Reinhardt, who are from this other Florida band called Cynic, who are basically like sort of a death metal band, but also like this progressive jazz fusion band. Okay. Who are like super technical and like really experimental. Also, both of them were gay. Okay. Um, although they weren't really out at the time. But I think everyone kind of knew they were gay. And he hires them to be the backing band for his next album. So it's like, while Death Metal is veering like further into this like fucking the shit of the dead ethic, he's like, no, I want to be rushed now. Like he's like trying to like become like super like prog rock, but still death metal, still with like the screamy guttural vocals and stuff. Okay. Okay. So he puts out this album Human, which is like death metal mixed with like progressive jazz fusion. It's like really weird. It's like Okay. It's really super strange album. And it's funny, like, this isn't in the documentary, but I just, like, Sean Reinhart is the drummer from Cynic and from this death album. And he's talked about, like, being gay in metal at the time mm-hmm. and how he was on tour with death at the time and looking out at all these meatheads, like, being like, you know. And he was just like, man, you guys are rocking out to some gay-ass metal. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I just always love oh, that. Amazing. <laughs> But then, like, they tried to go on tour again. And, like, everyone's, like, and they show this in the documentary. Everyone's, like, like there's an interview with some European journalist who's, like, are you really going to go on tour? Like, are you going to fuck up this? Like, are you going to drop out of the tour? Like, can we trust you? And he's, like, yeah. well, I guess if I fuck up, I'm going to have to come back to my next life as, like, an acorn. And that'll suck or something you know like and then he fucks up the next tour like he like goes on tour he insists that they bring all their own gear from the u.s which doesn't work because like like they can't plug anything in over there so like they have to rent their own electrical like stuff so that's super expensive once they get to germany he has a freak out fires their manager like drops out of the tour like everyone's suing everybody else like the guys from cynic you know paul masvidal and sean reinett they're like fuck this like we're going back to our own band and it's just this again this constant pattern so anyway that that's like the most interesting stuff in the documentary but like but then it gets to just be this kind of repetition of like and then he like gets another band together and things are going good and then he fucks that up and then he gets another band together and things are going good and then he fucks that up wow so like uh but let me like kind of jump to the end uh which is super tragic and this is where i told you like oh even the death metal story is gonna get me all choked up yeah so towards the end of the 90s, Chuck Schuldiner, they put out, let's see, how many death albums were there? Let's see, there's Scream, Bloody Gore, Leprosy, Spiritual Healing. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven death albums. They got like where death, like I said, death metal was going more and more or had gone more and more in this cannibal corpse direction. He was going more and more away from that okay he also like he would do things like like he gives these interviews where he he even gave an interview and they show it in the documentary where he's like i don't want to be just like one more guy who's like writing brutal lyrics for the sake of being brutal you know i was like that's stupid you know why would i do that that's idiocy he gives an interview on headbangers ball where he's wearing a t-shirt that's just like got kittens on it okay 
because he's just like he's like I don't, and everyone's like Chuck Schuldiner is the only guy who would have had the balls to do that <laughs> like okay because he was just like such a contrarian you know right right um so finally I think it's on their last album The Sound of Perseverance came out in 98 the record label like packaged it they put it out there as a, in an advertisement with like five other death metal albums and he like called the record label up and he was like, fuck you. I told you not to do this. Like, I'm going to break up. The, I like, I'm going to break up the band before I let you like fucking just market me. as just another death metal band. And that's what he did. So he broke up the band. He started a new band called Control Denied, which was essentially like a progressive metal band. Okay. Um, where he was like, I'm going to stop singing because he's like, I'm going to stop doing the like guttural vocals. He hired like a like an actual singer. He went to a new, or no, actually I lied. It wasn't Sound of Perfect. It was his second to last death album, I think. He switched record labels. The new record label was like, cool, cool, cool. We'll let you put out the Control Denied album, but we want one more death album. So he had to, like, he had to do one more death album. That's why he did the Sound of Perseverance. Okay. But Meanwhile, he's doing this Control Denied album, which is what he really wanted to do. But he's getting, like, neck pains. And he's, like, starts asking people, like, do you know anything about acupuncture? And they're, like, we're a bunch of death metal dudes. What do we know about acupuncture? I mean, more than anybody, you all should know about acupuncture. Yeah, you should, but they don't, (laughs) right? (laughs) So he goes to an acupuncturist, and they, like, I think she, like, pokes him with a needle, and he, like, spasms. She's, like, go get an MRI. Yeah. So he goes and gets an MRI. He's diagnosed immediately with what's called pontine glioma, which is a brain tumor, brain cancer, essentially on his 32nd birthday. So he doesn't give up. They're recording the Control Denied album. He's got his friend Steve DiGiorgio, who's like one of the only people from death who I think he like didn't constantly fire. Um, I think he had done a few death albums. He was the bassist for death, for at least a couple death, death albums, who's helping him record the album. But meanwhile, he's having gone for, like, radiation treatments, and he goes in for surgery. And, like, so this is where I got choked up in this story. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to go to New York, I think, for surgery. Um, and he called Steve DeGiorgio. He's like, I need you to come in and record your bass parts. And Steve DeGiorgio is like, well, let me, like, you know, really, like, listen to it. And, like, really, like, you know, absorb it. He's like, no, I need you to, like, like we're on a death. I need you to come in and like record your shit tomorrow. Yeah. So Steve's like, okay, like cool. I'll do it. I'll like I'll figure it out. And, and he's like basically like coming into a studio, I think, in Orlando. Okay. And then so the next day, Chuck calls him, is like, Are you cool to like you're coming in? And he's like, Yeah, I'm on my way. And he's like, Okay, well, I'm not gonna be there. I'm actually gonna be in New York getting radiation treatments. I think oh, that's why he's saying I'm getting radiation treatments. And so Steve DeGeorge is like, Okay, well, what am I supposed to do? He's like, so and so is gonna be there to help me. I think the producer. Or maybe one of the other people in the band is like, he'll he'll be there to help you. I think was, no, I think it was the producer. So Steve Giorgio is there. They record. You know, Meanwhile, Chuck Schuldiner is off in, at NYU Medical Center getting radiation treatments. They record all his parts. They call Chuck Schuldiner. And, you know, just to check in. And, and they're like, hey, can we play you like what we recorded today? And Chuck, who's like just gone through radiation treatments, is really weak, really not doing well. Yeah. He's like, yeah, no play for me. So he like holds up to the phone. He like holds up the recording of the play. And he says, and we're like sitting there like, oh man, that sounds fucking sick. You know, like uh, Steve and like the producer were like, oh, that sounds great. You know, they're not hearing anything from Chuck. Okay. So finally they're done with the recording. They're like, so what'd you think? He says, there's this like long pause. He says, he hears this hiss because it's like a long distance. He's like, he's like, I, he was like, I wondered if like the call dropped. He's like, 
Chuck, are you there? And finally, Chuck, like, really weak, because he's like, yeah, I'm still here. He's like, are you okay? Like, what'd you think? He's like, that was the best get well present I could have ever had. And so, yeah. And so, like, he did kind of recover a little bit for a while, and they managed to get the album out. I think within a year or so, the cancer returned, and Chuck Schuldner, he died on December 13th, 2001, at 34 years old. And so the godfather of death metal, Chuck Schuldiner, died like just a little more than a year after David Hackney, like one of the godfathers of proto-punk, died. Wow. Two bands called Death and the documentaries about them. I would say like as documentaries go, like I said, a band called Death is on its own terms. Very good. Mm-hmm. If you are a fan of death metal and you want to know more about Chuck Schuldiner and you're willing to like put up with the frustration of like, why can't I understand what his mom is saying? <laughs> like, why didn't you mic his mother? Like, oh God, it's worth watching death by metal, but it is a much more frustrating experience as just a documentary. <sighs> there you go. That's, there that's, we go. That's my story. Two bands called death. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so the story that I'm going to cover today, Uh I heard about it, I think, right after we started doing this podcast back Uh in 2020, and I really wanted to cover it, and it was, like, such a fucking bummer that I was like, I... You weren't sure. Like, I can't bring myself. Yeah, I can't bring myself to do to do it. But just a few days ago, some stuff changed. So I'm going to tell you the story this time. Okay. Uh, I'm going to tell it to you now. Trigger warning. The story does deal with violence against women, sexual mm. assault, suicide, and murder. Ugh. Sources for this are Wikipedia, The Guardian, The New York Times, Vanity Fair, The Tate Museum, The Guggenheim Museum, CNN, The Village Voice, and the Death of an Artist podcast. Uh, today, I'm going to talk to you about Cuban-American artist Anna Mendieta. I think I saw something about this. Yeah. So Anna was born on November 18th, 1948 in Havana, Cuba. She was born to an attorney father and a chemist mother. And at the age of 12, she was sent to the U.S. This was in 1961 via the Operation uh Pedro Pan, which was also known as Operation Peter Pan. This Mm. was a clandestine exodus of over 14,000 minors aged 6 to 18 to the U.S. from Cuba. The reason for this was after Castro went into power, parents in Cuba. So Castro takes power and stuff starts to happen. And it's pretty clear that he's like, yay, communism, right? And at first people are like, okay, yeah, cool. Bautista was an asshole. Like this is, this is a good way to go. And then this is for like the pro Castro people. And then it starts to become clear that like, they start seeing that like school age children are doing military drills and like they're being taught to like operate weapons and they're singing these like anti-American songs in school. And so these rumors start that Castro is going, he's going to like strip parents' rights away that he's going to um, like indoctrinate all of the children into communism, that he's going to send them to the Soviet Union to go to school, all of this stuff. So Catholic charities, the Catholic church and the state department get together and they're like, let's do Operation Peter Pan. Okay. 
So there are two components to this, the kids being taken from Cuba to the U.S. via plane. And then once they land there, there are programs led by the Catholic Church and Catholic Charities and with the help of the State Department to like get them placed in American homes. Mm-hmm. It was the largest exodus of minor refugees in the Western Hemisphere, and it operated completely covertly because it would have absolutely been seen as like an anti-Castro movement, right? right. So, and Anna, we weren't quite ready for that. I mean, the people in Cuba weren't ready for that. Right. That's exactly. the thing is that like they they were like, we like if people if if Castro knows that we are sending our children to the U.S. to escape him, it's done. Right. Right. Exactly. So Anna and her older sister, Raqueline, landed in Florida where they spent a few weeks in refugee camps. And then they moved in between institutions and foster homes in Iowa. I have seen differing things depending on the sources, which is that they were absolutely kept together because their parents signed a power of attorney mandating that they be kept together and other things saying that they got separated once they got to the U.S. Okay. I'm not sure which which is true. Yeah. Probably shitty record keeping, I'm sure. In 1966, Anna was reunited with her mother and younger brother. Her mother was pregnant with this youngest brother when Anna and her sister left. She would not be reunited with her father until 1979 because her father spent 18 years in a political prison in Cuba for his involvement with Bay of Pigs. Okay. So in Cuba, Anna had grown up upper middle class. Um, She attended an all-girls Catholic private school. She came from an old and remarkable Cuban family. Like (laughs) there was like presidents and stuff in her lineage. And like she, like she spent her summers at her grandmother's beach estate. Like she was a bit of a sheltered child. Yeah. And then she gets dropped into the U.S. She goes to Iowa. You know, she's in like reform school or orphanages. Throughout all of this, by the time she hits about middle school age, she discovers a love and a passion for art. She goes to, I think, like a junior college after graduating high school. She goes to a junior college for a little bit, but then she ends up transferring to the University of Iowa. And she actually like drew a sort of like morbid inspiration. Iowa is clearly completely different than Cuba Uh in terms of like everything but landscape especially and I think she drew the sort of like morbid inspiration from the landscape and she was also getting involved with the avant-garde art community she enrolled in the MFA program at uh, University of Iowa where she studied under the influential German artist Hans I don't know if it's Breder or Breeder, but he was this artist who was interdisciplinary. So he was like really pushing his students to like, you know, don't just create a piece of art, like work across mediums. Yeah. Like don't limit yourself. Right. Fuck with genre. Yeah. Don't limit yourself. Um, Of course, during her time in the U.S. on a faced racism, she was uh, like she is she is a. She was a brown Cuban woman. Yeah. She, you know, didn't speak English very well when she got here, barely at all. She simultaneously felt a disconnect in the U.S. 
and this trauma of being torn from her homeland. Throughout her career, she would question her identity. She would become very aware of being a woman of color. And her work really pushed at ethnic, sexual, moral, religious, and political boundaries. Because of all of this, Anna's work is unapologetically feminist, raw, and violent. Mm. Uh, I'll talk about that more here in a sec. So in 1973, while she was pursuing her MFA at Iowa, Anna learned of the rape and murder of a nursing student named Sarah Ann Ottens. She was inspired to create a piece that she would call Rape Scene, and it would be remembered as one of her most confrontational and violent works. The piece consisted of an invited audience arriving at Anna's home where they found the front door ajar. Upon entering, they found Anna bent over and tied to a table, naked from the waist down, blood dripping down her legs and pooling on the floor. Wow. Uh, This is a quote from the Guardian article. Quote, they all sat down and started talking about it, Mendieta said in a 1977 interview. I didn't move. I stayed in that position for about an hour. It really jolted them. There are photographs of this. You can absolutely find them online if you want to see them. Like the photographs are disturbing (laughs) in and of themselves. So I cannot imagine what the actual in-person thing must have been like. Professor and art historian Kyra Cabanas said this about rape scene, quote, her body was the subject and object of the work. She used it to emphasize the societal conditions by which the female body is colonized as the object of male desire and ravaged under masculine aggression. Mendieta's corporal presence demanded the recognition of a female subject. The previously invisible, unnamed victim of rape gained an identity. The audience was forced to reflect on its responsibility. Its empathy was elicited and translated to the space of awareness in which sexual violence could be addressed. So that's what I'm talking about. Like, she's doing work that is really like... Right. (laughs) It is... It is... It is personal. It is political. It like it is. Yeah, it's like it's violent. It's aggressive. Right. In 1978, Anna joined the Artists in Residence, also known as the AIR Gallery in New York City. And it was the first gallery for women established in the U.S. She spent a lot of time like deeply devoted to the administration and maintenance of the AIR But after two years, she felt excluded from the American feminist movement, which was, in her words, quote, basically a white middle class movement. And Mm. as we've talked about on this podcast, she's not wrong. Yeah. Other influential works of Anna's include the Silhouetta series, and this was 1973 to 1985. It was female silhouettes in nature made of like mud, sand, grass, leaves, twigs, blood, all like natural stuff. The series embody a process of rituals and Anna spoke of how the work was a dialogue between the landscape and the female body. Uh, She said, quote, I believe this has been a direct result of having been torn from my homeland, Cuba, during my adolescence. I am overwhelmed by the feeling of having been cast out from the womb. My art is the way I reestablish the bonds that unite me to the universe. It is a return to the maternal source. So again, she's like- really like work. I mean, I think all, 
I think most artists are like working stuff out in their art. Sure. Hers is very, very personal, very feminine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So an interesting thing about her work, because she created these like ephemeral works, whether it's this like performance art piece, like rape scene, or like a lot of pieces in the Silhouette series, which were made of like natural materials, like out in nature. Right. She was like, well, these are, they're not permanent. So she would create these works and then have like friends and stuff photograph them. And then the photographs and the videos would be then become like the art that was widely shared. Yeah. Yeah. According to according to her website, quote, her unique hybrid of form and documentation are fugitive and potent traces of the artist's inscription of her body in the landscape, often transformed by natural elements such as fire and water. It's just like cool stuff she went and did this thing in cuba i think like in the late 70s maybe early 80s where she like went and found this like secluded cave and she did these like etchings in the cave and in the podcast they share a snippet of like people like art students going back and like finding the etchings and stuff and that they're like still there you know however many years later okay she did another piece called the moffat building piece this was 1973 (laughs) I can't figure out if I would love her or be like, oh, my God, on it, like (laughs) bothered by her. She poured cow's blood and viscera in front of her apartment in Iowa City and then documented the people passing by it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's. I mean, I'm going to draw a weird uh, connection between the dudes in my stories and uh Anna but like again you know talking about these uncompromising artists and like one thing probably a little bit less about David Hackney but I think is very clearly true about Chuck's uh Schuldiner people say like mm, dude was just wound a little too tight it's like I don't know that he was like easy to be around yeah but like that being easy to be around is not necessarily conducive to making great so like you it's possible yeah. that you might yeah you might be like oh come on but also like that may be why she was a genius you know yeah like, sometimes sometimes you know that that may be a necessary component to your personality to like like being confrontational as a person sometimes you might need that to be confrontational i think there was this thing in her that was like i just don't give a fuck yeah you, you and it was a lot like, of like i don't give a fuck yeah it was like whether she was like i'm going to do this like unblinking unflinching performance art piece about rape or like pouring out a bunch of cow blood on her front stoop like she was like i don't care Right, and I mean, and again, to draw, like, a little bit of a base comparison, it's a little bit of, like, David Hackney being like, I don't give a fuck, Clive Davis, if (laughs) if you're offering me $20,000, I'm not going to change the band name. Yeah. It's a little bit of, like, that, it's just, it's a personality trait that sometimes I think might be necessary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, with this Moffat building piece, she pours out the blood, she, you know, documents people, like, walking by it. The way it looks, it really looks and again you can find pictures of it online i am not going to share any pictures of her art online absolutely go and look for it you like everything is out there but the way it's done it really it looks like somebody's throat was slit like on the stoop yeah and it's interesting because she's not just doing this piece to be like this is going to freak people out she's really like it's not about the blood she's 
the art is in how people are reacting to it. Yeah. And probably unsurprisingly, people are like curious about it, but like nobody's like, what is this? Uh-huh. Like what happened? Is are people okay? Like what is this? People right. are just well, sort of that, like, huh? Mm, that, that, I mean, that's really the statement right there, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So she, I think it was like her and maybe her sister or a friend basically like sat in a car with like a super eight camera and like filmed people like walking by and looking at it. I think they also took pictures. The film ends when the shopkeeper who was in the space next door um, comes out and is like, you know, and cleans the blood up. Yeah. <laughs> photos that I mentioned, the photos that I mentioned of the passersby were also collected and they became the series untitled People Looking at Blood, Moffat, Iowa. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So like I said, her work is visceral. It's aggressive. Um, and while it is like not what I would call pretty, really? like there's nothing in it that I'm like, ooh, I would like to have that in my house. It's absolutely something that, that everybody should go take well, a look at. Well, I mean, uh, that that it seems like what she's doing is beyond the fucking the shit of the dead mentality of like, Yeah. Yeah. You know, and she, there, there's she, there's a thought process there that is that is not just shock value, you know. Yeah, I think that's that's really the thing is that it's 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 not about like oh, won't it be so funny when we like shock people. I think she was really like working out how she felt about being a Cuban woman in the US well, in the 70s. And again, it's it's the if it was just about the blood, you know, let's shock people by dumping a bunch of blood somewhere. It's like, well that's Alice Cooper or something. You know. Right. But it but the statement is the fact that people didn't react. You know, like that's what yeah. makes it like, okay, now we got to think about this. Yeah. You know? You can find a lot of her work on her website, which is anamendieta.com. The Guggenheim, the Tate, like a lot of places have her artwork. Uh, And again, you should go and look at it. She was often described as like super interesting, fun, extremely good company, lively. Like people were like, she was, she was always making plans. She was funny. Uh She was engaging. She was vital. But she was also the kind of person that not, everyone liked there's a story about when she is doing this thing in italy and she walks up to this other artist and she's like we're gonna be friends and the woman is like i immediately was like i do not like this person (laughs) (laughs) she was also argumentative experimental and honestly like a little gross you know what i mean sure sculptor marcia pels who is the is the artist that was like i don't like you (laughs) (laughs) She recalls, quote, Anna came across as selfish and egotistical, but it was a facade. She was really very generous and very vulnerable. She didn't like to be alone. She loved to party, to drink. She was judgmental and honest. She'd bitch. She'd make a stink. She could be endearing, and then you'd want to punch her in the face. She was so (laughs) small that she looked like a child, so all her power and presence came through her voice. She was incredibly loud. She was a little volatile person. Amid the women's and anti-war movements of the 1970s, Anna was at the forefront of art getting radical. As mentioned in the Death of an Artist podcast, her work was a threat to the patriarchy, which is like, what a fucking like badass, uh, like epitaph, right? Like (laughs) her work was a threat to the patriarchy. Amazing. 
Um, okay. So by the mid 1970s, Anna had been showing her work internationally. Um, and she was also spending a good amount of time in New York city. She decided to like permanently relocate to New York city in 1978 after she finished her MFA in 1979, she did a solo exhibition of photographs at the AIR. And it was there one night, November of 1979, after a discussion titled, I kid you not, how has the woman's art movement affected male art attitudes? Uh, it was after that, that a man came up to her and said, I'm Carl Andre, and I would like to take you to dinner. Mm. Anna was like, no. Um, <laughs> 1979 was also the year that she would return to Cuba. She actively worked with the Cuban government on the reunification of Cuban families. So like she was a big part of Cubans who were in the U.S. being able to go back to Cuba to like be with their families. Uh, just in like the 70s. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. She, of course, had a lot going against her in the art world. She wasn't white. She wasn't a dude. She wasn't meek or humble. Her and her work was opinionated and weird. She was the opposite of subtle. But regardless, she was making a name for herself. She was awarded the John Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship. She was given multiple grants from the NEA. She was invited to show an exhibit sponsored by the Cuban government. She was awarded the Prix de Rome in 1983. And this was a huge deal because it gave her room and board Rome to like study art. Okay. Um, and to like work on things. She was excited. She was making plans for her future. And all of the while she was involved in this passionate and volatile relationship with Andre. Uh -huh. Real talk. I don't want to talk about him a lot. Okay. First of all, there's a ton of information out there about him. And the story that I am telling has mostly belonged to him in other venues. So I don't want to talk about him and his bullshit a lot. But here's what you need to know about Carl Andre. Okay. He was born in 1935, which means he was about 15 years older than Anna. He was born in Massachusetts. His family was of Scottish and Swedish descent. He was considered one of the forefathers of minimalism and his medium was sculpture. He always wore a uniform of like workman's coveralls. He had this long beard. He basically was like creating this look that affected a working class persona, but he wasn't that. <laughs> phony. Yeah. By the time he met Anna in November of 1979, he was already very, very well known and revered in the art world. And he was rich. Uh -huh. He was making a lot of money. Yeah, I know I've heard art. I mean I've heard of him. I know I think this is why I've heard her name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh the people who knew him seemed to share a consensus that Andre was a genius, that he was eccentric, charismatic, and not at all likable. When Anna won the Prix de Rome, Andre didn't want her to go. They were already together. Uh, he didn't want her to go. She was like, I'm going. And they broke up. But then Andre basically wooed her long distance. It kind of seemed like they had a pattern of like being deeply in love, arguing, breaking up and reconciling. Yeah. The two were married on January 16th, 1985. It was Anna's first marriage and Andre's third because of who they were, their social circle was wide and varied, and it 
seems like Anna didn't always fit in with Andre's Andre's group. We're talking about the the portion of the art world that values theory over like feeling. Right. And honestly, if you look at Andre's work, you'd have to value theory over feeling. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've ever, I mean, I've heard of him, but I've never looked at anything. I get like, I don't want to get super into it, but one of his pieces literally is like, you know, when you're wandering around like an old, like an older t- small town and you see like a sidewalk that just kind of ends in the grass. Uh-huh. Like that's one of his pieces. Okay. It's literally just a sidewalk that like ends. So like where the sidewalk ends by Shel Silverstein, which is like, I wish. I'm sure much better. I, I wish it was that. Yeah. So yeah. So Anna didn't always fit in with this group. The behavior that was like excused and like delighted in from Andre was seen as distasteful in Anna. The fact that she was ambitious, the fact that she was loud, like people were like, uh-huh. mm, yeah. There is a story about when they went, they were they'd gone to do this thing for like a gallery at the Hague or something. And, you know, they're like at this dinner with like 75 people. And the guy who's telling the story is like, at some point, Anna just like, she starts talking very loudly and she gets up on her chair and the chair falls over. And it was like, but like, that's who she was. She was very, she had a very like Latin American or South American like personality. Uh, I can see, I can see you about to like, yeah. <laughs> so all of this to say also the two the two were drinking buddies. Like they loved drinking together. And when they drank, even in public, they fought and they fought viciously. Yeah. So it just sounds like toxic, not good all around. Yeah. Around 5 a.m. on the morning of September 8th, 1985, a few people heard a woman's voice say, no, 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 no. And seconds later, something that sounded like a crash or an explosion coming from the roof of the DeLion grocery in Greenwich Village. At 529, Andre calls 911 and he says that his wife had committed suicide. When the 911 operator asked what happened, Andre replied, quote, what happened was we, my wife is an artist and I am an artist. And we had a quarrel about the fact that I was more uh, exposed to the public than she was. And she went to the bedroom and I went after her and she went out the window, end quote. At around 540 in the morning, police arrive at Andre and Anna's apartment and they find Andre with a wet mark on his nose. They find tons of empty wine and champagne bottles in the kitchen. In the bedroom, they find the window over the bed open the sheets in disarray, and a chair knocked over. Andre tells police that he didn't see Anna go out the window. He just knew that she did. His account of events to the police are as follows. It's Saturday evening. Andre and Anna watch TV and they drink some wine. At some point, Anna says she's going to bed and that Andre should join her. He doesn't. After the movie is done, Andre goes to the bedroom. Anna isn't there. Andre goes out to the living room where he waits for 20 minutes. He checks the bedroom again and then he calls the police. While he's telling this account to the police, he also talks about how, well, maybe he did kill her because she wanted him to go to bed with her and he didn't. And so maybe in that way that he is responsible for her death, because you see, he's a very famous artist and she wasn't. And maybe that got to her and that's why she killed herself. The cops are like, okay, And they're like, we're going to they call for the lieutenant while one cop is calling for the lieutenant. Andre pulls out a catalog of his work to show to the other police officer. Jesus. Yeah. Um, 
The police take Andre to the station, and it's here that he gets questioned by two detectives. He tells them that around 9.30 p.m. the night before, they ordered Chinese food. Anna was drinking heavily. They watched the U.S. Tennis Open semifinals, a Yankees game, Dracula, and Without Love. At 3 a.m., Anna says that she's going to bed. At 3.30, Andre goes to the bedroom and doesn't find her. When the detectives asked if he looked out the window or what he thought had happened to her, Andre responds, no, and I don't know. The detectives asked if he remembered what he'd said to 911, that they'd had an argument, that she'd gone out the window, to which Andre replied, what I said, I said. Uh, I mean... (laughs) I mean, can we even call it a red flag? Like, it is, or is it like a nuclear like alarm siren? Like, it it's, I, <laughs> yeah, I like I I'm I can't. Um, okay, so like everything, and I mean absolutely everything about what happens next is infuriating uh and is also why i was like i can't i can't tell this story uh i'm gonna give broad strokes because there's there's a lot of bullshit to go through so at this point police take andre back to his apartment they're like you know we're gonna take photos Andre calls a few people, none of which are Anna's family. Uh And he's calling people and he's like, hi, this is Andre. Anna's dead. We'll have to cancel our dinner engagement for tonight. (sighs) It's like, those are the phone calls that he's making. I mean, psychotic. A friend of Anna's, uh, a woman named Natalia Delgado, who, by the way, Anna had been talking to the night before. They spent two hours on the phone the night before because Anna was telling Natalia They had this entire conversation in Spanish, but Anna was telling Natalia that she was going through Andre's phone records, his credit card receipts, all of this stuff, because she was like, he's cheating on me Mm -hmm. and I'm gathering evidence because I'm going to divorce him. And she, I don't know if she was joking. I don't know if she was just like in a mood, but at some point she told Natalia, she was like, you and I should get some wigs and we should follow him around and like stake him out Uh and like see if we can catch him in the act. Natalia was like, maybe you should just talk to him. Like, maybe not all the dramatics, maybe just like talk to him. Which maybe. But so the next day, Natalia calls and she's like, can I talk to Anna? (laughs) Andre says that Anna isn't home. And when Natalia asks Andre to tell Anna to call her, Andre says, I'll give her the message. There is no mention of her being dead. He's just like, okay, I'll tell her. Okay. The cops talk to witnesses. They look around. They take Andre back to the station. At this point, the detectives, because he's dealing with the detectives now, the detectives were like, why don't you go ahead and just like write down a statement of what happened? Uh At this point, I think it's like a lawyer friend comes in for Andre and he's like, don't write anything down. And the cops are like, okay. We see that you've got like this mark on your nose. You've got a scratch. Like it's a, it looks like a scratch. You've got a scratch on your arm and you've got a scratch on your back. Can we go ahead and take some pictures? And Andre's like, no. Yeah. So the detectives call the assistant, the assistant DA. Fuck, I skipped a bit, but we'll go back to it. Um, they call assistant DA Marsh, Martha Bashford. And they're like, He's not doing a video statement and he's not letting us take pictures of him. And she says, this is a quote. She says, fuck him. He's under arrest. 
<laughs> so they arrest him. Well, yeah, because I mean, it's I mean, yeah, it's like I know you have rights against incrimination, but then that means like, yeah, we think you did it. Yeah. So, like I said, like when they're when they're like doing all this stuff, when they're talking to the witnesses, when they're like looking around the apartment and stuff, they they or sorry, when they take him back to the station, they ask him to write down his account of what happens. And he actually does. He writes down the thing, but it's like super vague. Like he had been like it was I waited 20 minutes and then suddenly it's just like it was later. There's no mention of the fight that he told 911 that they had no mention that he was in the room when she went out of the window and he doesn't use the word suicide anymore. Uh-huh. The biggest inconsistency. So he does do a written statement. He does. He declines doing a video statement. Okay. The biggest inconsistency throughout all of his reports is that according to his timeline, he found Anna missing at three 30 says that he waited 20 minutes, went back into the bedroom, and then called 911. So that call should have come into 911 at about 4 a.m., but it didn't. It came in at 529. So like I said, the detectives are like, what am I going to They go to the assistant DA. She's like, fuck him. He's under arrest. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> right on. Let's go. At his bail hearing, his lawyers are basically like, you got to let him go. He's like so important. He has like, he's, you know, he's going to be able to do bail and everything. He's got all of this money from all of this artwork. He's too well known to disappear, even though nobody outside of the art world could pick this motherfucker out of a lineup. Yeah. He gets released on quarter of a million dollar bail. Sure. Of course. A friend, I think, picks him up from this. And they talk about this in Death of a Podcast. The friend is like... Isn't like, what the fuck is going on? What happened? What, like, what happened to Anna? Like, all of this stuff. I think the friend is basically just like, are you okay? And Andre's like, I'm in like terrible grief. And then never fucking, I'm sorry, if I picked your ass up from jail, yeah, I would be like, what happened? Yeah, you would, I would expect you would want an explanation yeah especially if like there's a chance i might have murdered someone yeah you might want like a little bit of a conversation about it yeah so it takes like a couple of years for andre to actually go to trial over this in the meantime anna's like Sister, the woman that I mentioned, Natalia Delgado, there's a writer who's who writes for the Village Voice, who's also a woman. There's she's got like this group of people that are like, something is fucking fishy here, and we don't want the story to get forgotten. Like we want Andre to go to trial, we want Anna to get justice, and all of this stuff. Meanwhile, just as an also aside, Andre shows up to Anna's memorial with another woman. Of course he does. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So they're like doing this stuff. They're writing these articles. They're like meeting with the DAs. They're basically just being like, please, please, please don't forget this case. Like, please don't let it fall by the wayside. Please help, help us help her. Andre, meanwhile, has all of these friends who are like rallying around him. There's one guy who's like, she's he's being victimized by this fucking this is a direct quote, a feminist cabal who's like Uh out to get him. Of course. And all this stuff. And like, none of them are actually like being like, what happened? They're all, I mean, you know, this, we like don't want to talk about it. It's the same like, feminist cabal that has been going after Roman Polanski. For yes, it. exactly. I would like to sign up for the feminist cabal. 
Yeah, we're would... in the recruitment office. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> where where can I what old like, you know, blockbuster video can I walk into and sign up for the feminist cabal? I um like, I, like where can I get time on the Jewish space laser? Like, seriously. Yeah. So, like I said, no, all of his his friends aren't, like, making him talk about it. They're not asking him questions. They're not holding him to any kind of, you know, account or anything, right? They're just like, right. oh, man, God, it really sucks that, like, all this weird stuff happened to you. And in allowing him to do that, they allow him to not talk ever about what happened that night. Yeah. And that's what Andre does. For his entire trial. He never testifies. Him and his lawyers ask for a bench trial instead of a jury trial, which means that your case gets heard by a judge and not by a jury. The podcast Death of an Artist speculated that this was done because when you are a genius, the way that Andre is a genius, how will you ever be able to find a jury of your peers? (laughs) the courtroom is i think in the podcast they said it looked like a bad wedding like anna's side the prosecution side is full of people who were there for anna carl's side is empty and he specifically was like don't come i don't want you to see that and it was all done under the thing of like oh like you know i don't want you to have to see that like you know like i'm so sensitive and like i don't want to you know blah 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 but what it really ended up meaning was that nobody had ever heard any of the testimonials any of the like testimony about what had happened that night oh yeah andre's defense takes the avenue like the route that anna wanted to die uh-huh. they point to her art uh that andre was so much more famous than she was that she resented being sent to the u.s that she was angry at men and specifically at her father and that's why she drank so much they said that anna was fascinated with santeria and rituals that she was jealous that she was an angry drunk with a death wish like all of this stuff right Mm. for the record Andre had had a conversation recently before Anna's death with a friend about how he was like, oh, my star is falling and my time is over. And because I think the art world was moving into, I believe, neo-expressionism. Yeah. And so minimalism was on its way out. And he was like, meanwhile, Anna's getting, you know, she's getting grants. She's getting solo exhibitions like her star is rising. Yeah. Additionally, for the record. Anna was pissed. She was pissed that her husband was cheating on her. Sure. But she was also excited about her bright future. Yeah. You know, that evening she was definitely a little drunk. Her blood alcohol level was, I think, 0.15. Yeah. You know, also to say she was 4'11". She weighed 95 pounds. Uh And she had a terrible and well-known fear of heights. Because I think they were also sort of like, she was sitting in the windowsill and she was doing this stuff and she fell out or maybe she killed herself. Like, basically, the defense tried to do a thing of like, we can't prove that it's not murder. So we're going to prove that it also could have been any one of these. Other right. Things. It's the whole just like throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall because it's the whole reasonable doubt. So you just muddy up the waters thing. Right. And like I said, her fear, like they were on the 33rd, 34th floor. Uh-huh. Like she wouldn't have been like, I'm going to sit in the window to like yeah, freak you out or whatever the fuck. Um, additionally, the window that she fell out of was chest height uh-huh. on Anna. Like, uh, yeah, you can't fall out of a window. There was a bunch of stuff that the judge threw out. Like, I guess the warrant didn't include 
like dusting for fingerprints and they only found a fingerprint on the windowsill which may have belonged to the cop when he like looked out the window and like leaned over it but like there wasn't a footprint on like which there would have been like it was yeah it was early hours of the morning she had been in bed right you know in february of 1988 carl andre was acquitted of second degree murder Uh His life after the trial was marred by rumors and protests by some. There were still plenty of people in the art world who really felt that his work was either too important to be tied to the actions of a flawed man or a private affair and therefore had no bearing in discussions of his work. So he was Uh still getting shows at big museums. Yeah, I mean, he was still working because I read profile of him not that long that's why i know some of this story yeah however having said that there are many who refuse to forget anna andre's gallery showings are often met with protest in may of 2014 no wave performance task force staged a protest um at the dia art foundation's andre in retrospective where they poured piles of animal blood and guts and they wore track suits that said i wish anna mendieta was still alive i think maybe that's what I, that's the one i read In 2017, protesters at another retrospective at the Geffen passed out cards that read, Carl Andre is at the Mocha Geffen, donde esta Ana Mendieta, which translates to where is Ana Mendieta. On January 24th of this year, Carl Andre died. He was 88 years old. What a shame. In 2009... Anna was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Cintas Foundation. In 2010, she was the subject of Where is Anna Mendieta 25 Years Later, an exhibition and symposium. In 2018, the New York Times published a belated obituary as part of their Overlooked No More series, which is actually a pretty cool obituary series. Like I said, it's called Overlooked No More, and they say in there that the obituaries for the New York Times have been overwhelmingly white male and so this is their effort to correct that we will unfortunately never know what more she was capable of or how much her work might have shaped the art world and our world as well Uh, but she surely would have left her mark had her life not been cut tragically short anna would be 75 this year and that is the brilliant life and infuriating death of cuban-american artist anna mendieta yeah no i i hadn't heard that he died i mean burning hell motherfucker but like i I had read a little bit about and unfortunately i didn't know that i hadn't read that much about her i just remember reading uh some of the i think stories of the protests about him Mm -hmm. and um you know it just makes me think about because like there's the you know there's william s burroughs who fucking murdered his wife and you know whether it was on purpose or an accident no one really knows there's stuff about norman mailer there's like these fucking men and like i don't know i just think about like you know again being like the metal punk rock horror dude and like you know people you know i remember being in fucking middle school and people thinking because i was into that shit i was going to be a serial killer Mm. but i look at these like high art motherfuckers who do this shit and then like you know as i talked about on the podcast stephen king happily married his entire fucking life you know what it's it's interesting too because andre's trial was taking place at the same like literally down the hall the preppy murder 
dude, yeah. his trial was happening. Right. And Bernard Getz, who was the guy who shot four yeah. black teenagers on the subway. Right. It was like vigilante justice type of thing. Like all of these trials were taking, there was also um, a mob dude, but basically it was yeah. this time, this time of like men behaving badly. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm like, I mean, I, I don't remember the details, but like the Norman Mailer stuff, because like, and Philip Roth is, and I don't think he killed, killed anyone, but just like, you know, just a vicious misogynist. And like, but these, you know, these celebrated fucking, you know, literary lions or, you know, fine art people or whatever. And then meanwhile, like the dudes I just talked about, like fucking the guys in death. Yeah. You know, this family that like loved each other, you know? Yeah. And yeah, David Hackney, like he had a drinking problem. But like, like I said, he was happily married for 22 years. His wife talked about, you know, how, how they, she stuck by him even through his like darkest times. And like, yeah. You know, Chuck Schuldiner was like, you know, maybe like kind of a difficult dude, but like none of this kind of bullshit. Yeah. And yet we celebrate these motherfuckers. And yet there's still people being like, bring Roman Polanski home. And like, yeah, it is fucking crazy. It is. Um, this is obviously a very, very superficial look at not only her death, but also her life. If you are interested in hearing more about it. And I really, really hope that you are. Um, Death of an Artist podcast is is very interesting because the woman who does it is an art lover and she was a Carl Andre, like Stan. Uh-huh. Um, and she talks about how like, she, you know, she was introduced to his work and she was like, oh my God, like it's so punk rock and all of this stuff. And then when she heard about Ana Mendieta's work, she was like, I don't like it. Like I, this is dumb. And then as she's looking at it now, um, she's sort of like, fuck, I don't know what to do with this. And she talks a lot. She grapples with the thing of like, what do we do with the work of, of problematic men? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I used to, I used, I didn't really care much about William S. Burroughs as an artist because I'm not into his whole cut up technique of writing. I tried to read Naked Lunch and I was just like, what the fuck is this? But like, it just is a persona. He was on, you know, he did all the spoken word stuff. He popped up on all these like indie rock albums in the 90s and stuff okay and just as like a like as a personality like i kind of like dug him like he was kind of edgy and hip and then you find out like he shot his wife in the face and it's like no like yeah you know it's just like we need to like not just pretend that that's like a thing we're just gonna like ignore or just like act like is like eh, it's just like part of his legacy you know? i think that's the thing that makes me the 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 most one of the things well i can't say that because there's so much in it that makes me so angry but one of the things that i was like god damn it was the thing that like people are like that like his fans continue to fall into two camps which is either that was something that was like about his personal life and I don't deal with his personal life. I'm only dealing with his art. And so therefore I get to still like be a Carl Andre Stan or the people that are like, there's no way to like, uh, like his, his work is so brilliant. He's right. such a genius that it's pointless to talk about the flaws of the human well, behind the work. I mean, obviously, I've talked about this with Lovecraft, and like, and, you know, and we've talked about this before with like, you know, we've kind of touched on it with Polanski or even with J.K. Rowling. Is it's like, do you throw out all of the art? Like, I've talked about, like, obviously, Lovecraft is a huge influence on me. 
and he's a racist motherfucker and like you know there's at least two polanski films that like are really hard for me to like completely throw away you know Mm -hmm. baby in chinatown but for me it's like it's not hard for me particularly with Polanski to be like, yes, Rosemary's Baby is a brilliant film. Chinatown's a brilliant film. And I think Roman Polanski should have gone to prison. Like those things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And like, you know, we can, we can wrestle with the art. However we wrestle with the art, but that doesn't mean you turn away from the terrible things that people do. Yeah. And like, and particularly when it comes to this story, because she has been forgotten by so many people. That was, that was a bit of the thing when I first heard this story, because I think I might've heard about it on Reddit. And I think it was like, I think it was like in today I learned and it was like, today I learned that Carl Andre most likely killed his wife. Like, and I think I looked into it because it said that his wife was this Cuban American artist. And so I was like, what is this? And I went and I looked it up. And her at the time, and again, this was late 2020, maybe early 2021, her Wikipedia page was half a page. And it was literally that she was a Cuban-born American artist, a couple of her influential works, and that she died and that her husband went to trial for it, but was acquitted. That was the extent of the information that I could find about her on Wikipedia. And the other, I didn't find a lot of other stuff about her either, which is also why i was like i want to do this story but everything is about him. about him right yeah it, so it's like yeah wrestle with his work however you see fit but like when it's at the exclusion of her and her legacy and her memory and her work that's a major problem yeah like, that's unforgivable yeah um so there it is go listen to death of an artist go check out her work on the interwebs um and I see why you didn't want to end <laughs> with that yeah it's a fucking uh, that's, bummer that's that's a uh well and i'm actually i'm actually glad that that paired with my because i think you know weirdly this was like an episode about uncompromising artistic creators yeah. in a way yeah um and and like i think you know you have you have sort of like you know run the gamut of yeah yeah different different types of i guess visionaries yeah should we i need need to know i need to learn a lot more about her i'm glad you talked about her yeah should we quickly get into the movies no let's 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 take as much time as we want it'll be a long episode that's okay so uh yeah so uh i said that i would watch barbie and i did mm-hmm. i don't know we want to talk about the whole like whether like the controversy around people being spurned at the oscars issue uh, or do you, should i just talk about what i thought of the movie because i'm not like we talked about you and me a little bit i mean i guess i'll i guess i'll say what i thought of the movie first and then we can talk about that sure the awards issue when we think, I, I mean i thought it was a really good movie like I think what I liked about Barbie, like, and it's like what I told you is like, it reminded me of the Lego movie in Mm -hmm. in the sense of like, I, you could say it's a kid's movie, but it's not really, it's, it's like about this 
toy product, um, but it's got this sort of like deeper, I'm not even going to say message, but sort of more thoughtful kind of thing to say about this like iconic toy. But Mm -hmm. then it never like gets kind of bogged down in that. It never forgets to be silly and fun. And like I laughed consistently throughout the movie. Yeah. Like the stuff of like just how you get in from Barbie world into the real world with like the rocket ship and then the snowmobile. (laughs) Yeah. I also have to give big props to Mattel for taking like a flagship property like Barbie and then hearing about the movie and being like, not only can you make the movie about Barbie, you can also like, you can also make fun of us in the movie. Like big, 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 big props to Mattel for that. I think one thing I love, you know, they, I liked that they didn't make the Mattel executives like villains, like the Will Ferrell people. They're just kind of dopey and stupid. But like, yeah, I did love the whole thing when they're like, no, we we are women. Like we had a, a woman executive like there was that one one time. Yeah. <laughs> And then the the other one, the other time. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought it was really funny. I thought as far as the like the award issue, I mean, I think America Ferrara well deserved because I like I think as you and I were talking about it, I think you know, so much of it is this kind of very stylized performances and she you do need this like kind of human heart in the middle of it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And so she brings this kind of grounding. And she's great when they're doing the, when they're like trying to drive away from the Mattel guys. And she's like, her daughter's like, how do you know to drive like this? And she was like, there was this guy (laughs) and her her daughter's (laughs) like, was it dad? And she's like, yeah, yeah, it was Um, like, she's, she's, she's great. You know, I love the idea that she's like having, you know, like a midlife crisis and she's, Thinking about like existential Barbie and cellulite Barbie and all of this stuff. Yeah. Like I, I think I think she's fantastic. Yeah, I'm I think she's very, very, very she, happy for her. And she doesn't like actually I think that could have been overplayed though, like, but she's sad and she brings this sad like she doesn't actually overplay that. Like it's like she's a little bit sad and she, you know, and so she brings like a little bit of this existential crisis. But again, it never like leans too far. Like, it never forgets to be funny and silly. Yeah. It's the same with the Ken character. It's like, you never, he never completely becomes a villain because he's like too, he doesn't understand what it is he's playing with. So he's just like too dopey to like fully be, like, it's like his understanding of what a patriarchy is, is so childish. Yeah. That like... Um, it's it's a really great way to like lampoon the idea of a patriarchy because it kind of like brings it down to like it was like he thought it was just about horses the whole yeah time. yeah you know? <laughs> yeah um i thought ryan gosling was fantastic i think yeah i haven't seen a lot of the other nominees but like i thought i think his is well deserved yeah i love the the like beach off battle at the end that turns into the goofy music video and love then, it yeah um like as we talked about, you know, I think Greta Gerwig probably should have been nominated. I, you know, there's a lot of the other directors I haven't seen all of the other movies, so it's like I can't say which movie I'd remove uh-huh. <laughs> to include yeah. her. But like, it's like such a clear vision that yeah, that's why it seems like I mean I I'm maybe a little less mad that Margot Robbie wasn't nominated. 
I mean, and here's the thing. No, like, I don't mean this in any kind of like shady way because I I can't, I also don't think any of the other, I don't think any of the women who are nominated for best actress are also like, I don't necessarily know that this is true for any of them either. I'm trying to like find out who all is on the list. Margot Robbie is going to be fine, guys. Like, yeah, she's going to be fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like her, her career is not over. She'll probably go on to do like other cool stuff too. Like, it's all fine. She's she's going to be okay. I And additionally, you know, with the thing of like, it's nominated for Best Picture. And if they were to win, both Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig would have an Oscar for Barbie. It might not yeah. be the acting one. It might not be the directing one. But they will have an right. Oscar that they can put on their fucking mantle and go, we made a movie and it, and it won an Oscar. Yeah. And didn't, let's, let's see, I don't think. Greta Gerwig won for Best Director, but she's been nominated for Best Director. Because I knew she was nominated for Lady Bird, I think. I I think she's been nominated a couple of times. Yeah, well, yeah. Was she nominated for Little Women? She might have been. I don't remember. I I but I I feel like I saw somewhere that she I mean, okay, yeah. See the the sorry, going back to this, uh actress in a lead role is Annette Benning, uh-huh. Sandra. Hewler from Anatomy of a Fall, uh-huh. Carrie Mulligan, Emma Stone. The one on like the one person that I'm like, I'm abs and you know, fingers crossed, knocking on wood on all of this stuff. Lily Gladstone, 100 percent I haven't even seen Killers of the Flower Moon, yeah. and she deserves to fucking be there. It's like yeah. the 118th Oscars, and she's the the first native woman to be right nominated she absolutely so i i mean i know who i'd kick out but i'm not gonna say it so anyways <laughs> no, I, I, yeah i mean we talked about poor things so I know you're not. yeah uh, yeah well and like so the other movies we talked about like i do want to mention uh real quick i did see it's nominated for best picture and i think it's also nominated in the best foreign category is um the zone of interest Mm-hmm. I would so of the movies I've seen, uh, there's a I haven't seen everything that's nominated. I'm not gonna see. I'm I'm less probably against it than you, but only by like a hair. But I'm not gonna see poor things. I'm not in, like I'm just not interested. I'm just I'm just not. I'm also definitely not gonna see Jew Face the musical, otherwise known as Maestro. Um, like I'm not uh just very much not interested in that one. But like I haven't seen Killers of the Fire Moon yet, you know. So there's uh things I haven't seen, but of the ones I have seen, I'm still like I would say Oppenheimer is my favorite of the things that are nominated for Best Picture, but Zone of Interest is like like a shade behind it. Okay. It's definitely not a crowd pleaser. Mm-hmm. So just for people who haven't heard of it, I just, I do want to talk about it a little bit because I think it's it's worth, because I think it's one a lot of people haven't heard of yet, probably. But it's it's about, it's it's a Holocaust drama, um, but it's about the family of Rudolf Haas, uh, is the guy's name, is a real person, who was the commandant of Auschwitz. And uh, it's basically about him and his family. It's a family drama about them, like, essentially living next door to Auschwitz. And it's about, and it's essentially about just their life as just good little Nazis living next door to Auschwitz. I have a question about this. I was thinking about this today when you were talking about this. I get, I get the like, the, the conceit of it, Uh right? That it, it is this like family drama taking place against the backdrop of the Holocaust. Is that, is that necessary? Like, is it necessary to tell that story? 
the way it's told, I would say yes, because it I've never seen a movie that's so fully gets inside the dehumanization of the Holocaust. Okay. And so fully captures, particularly in this moment where people like, and so I made the com- the Jew face, the musical comment. Mm-hmm. The, and like, here's the thing. I'm actually, I wouldn't be that mad about Maestro except for, I cannot tell you how many people are, are well actually online about like all the all the non-jews getting online trying to explain away anti-semitism to jews and explaining how things are not anti-semitic right now you know and basically like now is a moment where people are really like going out of their way to like make anti-semitism like it's not really that big a deal right now is it and so watching a movie where it's like it's happening over there on the other side of the wall Mm-hmm. so the so the director um jonathan glazer the way he said the way he described because what's happening is you're watching this like just family drama of these good little nazis you know having their little family dramas meanwhile you're hearing screams gunfire the constant drone of chimneys machinery happening mm-hmm. next door and the way he described it, he says that's uh the other movie he says arguably that's the real movie happening over there uh, but you never see any of it yeah. because they don't see it. And that's yeah. the point, is that they don't see it. it. It's That's where that leads. The moment you decide that those aren't people, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen a movie. You know, Schindler's List, great film. The Pianist, even though it's fucking Roman Polanski, great film. But these are all movies we know what a Holocaust drama looks like. Mm-hmm. Like we know what, you know, and, and it's like, it's like the, the, the misery porn of like slavery films we have all talked about this Mm -hmm. what we haven't seen is the like it's like that becomes numbing after a while Mm -hmm. like we've all we all know what like the misery of the concentration camp you know and like the diary of Anne frank like we've all and it's like it becomes a trope and we we start treating it like a trope Mm -hmm. and we kind of forget that this actually is just real and like people live through this and so nothing has actually put me in that experience the way the zone of interest has okay um because it's just it's it's such a sideways way at mm-hmm. that issue so that's why i think like that movie in this moment where anti-semitism we're in this like fraught moment of how we're dealing with it with this new wave of anti-semitism i think it's an important film for the moment so uh that's why i would because like i said i'm not actually that mad at maestro except for the fact that people are like trying to be like whatever about it you know it is a weird thing with maestro in that his family signed off on it and i don't mean like signed off on the movie i mean they signed off on the nose Uh uh-huh well and sarah silverman's in the movie and she's made she has specifically made the point about jew face and then and yeah she is showing up in the film playing his sister so it's like I'm I have I'm having a hard time processing that film. Mm, yeah. Okay. But it's you know, I probably wouldn't have been bothered by it, except people have gone out of their way to like mm, on social media about it. So it's got my contrarian hackles raised. So yeah. <laughs> um so anyway, so that's the zone of interest. I didn't okay. need to actually go on that long about it, but you kinda asked the question. So 
Mm-hmm. I do think we should real briefly talk also about the other movie because you mentioned it on social media, and I think it. I would say by a hair, it's like right up there with the zone of interest. Is actually, I think it should have been nominated for best picture. I don't know why it wasn't. I know it's nominated for best foreign. Uh, the change is not foreign. I'm like language. I know, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like now it's like foreign film. It's not foreign language. It's international film. But yeah, international film. But yeah, uh, but yeah. Society of yeah, is it Society of the Snow? Is that what it's, it's called? Yeah, Society of the Snow, and it is where is it? Yeah, international feature film is what it is up for, and it is a it is a Spanish film. But uh, what is the director's name? You know, you know the director, J. A. Bayona. Yes, he is Spanish. The cast is, I believe, Uruguayan. They are Uruguayan and Argentina. I think Argentinian. Yeah, mostly unknown. And it is, uh, it covers the miracle of the Andes story that I told um, mm-hmm. back in whatever episode that was. I just jotted down which one it was, but no, I'm it's, not remembering. Uh, you got to kill the bogey episode. Yes, yes, uh, it's that one. Gr- great movie. It is based on the book Society of the Snow, um, and that book was written. The author of that book was actually somebody who was friends with all those rugby players when they were like that age. Um, so it is like a deeply personal account of them and what happened up on the mountain. And it is, I don't I, I feel like it's a pretty unflinching look at what happened up there. Yeah. 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 Really, really good. I feel like, I think this movie did a really good job because the actors are young. I don't, it's Ethan Hawke and who else? In Josh alive? Hamilton. I just looked it up today. Josh so Hamilton? Josh Hamilton, Ethan Hawke. I don't, there's a couple others. I know John Malkovich is like the narrator. I think, I think he like is playing like one of the. Maybe the rescuer. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's playing one of the guys. He's playing oh, like the older, older version. version. Yes. Right. It's been so um, long since I've seen it. Hold on. Let me, let me see here. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a live. Alive. Uh, is Ethan Hawke like the really the big name in it? Yeah, he plays Nando, I think. Yeah, he sure does. Oh, there. Okay. I was completely thinking of somebody else when I was thinking of Josh Hamilton. I think, I don't know how old they were when they made that movie, but Society of the Snow, I think, actually cast actors who are right around that age. Like they, fe- yeah. they feel young. They yeah. feel, they feel, you know, well, I mean, I think. The oldest survivor that came off of the mountain was 25. They, he wasn't the he wasn't like the oldest person who was on the plane, but like of the survivors. I think there's one that's older. He's the one that was married. He's the married, yeah, who I think was like in his 30s, I think, right. when the plane crashed. But like it does a really good job of like they they feel young. They feel yeah. like boys. Yeah. And I think the I don't like want to give this away because I do think it is a bit of a plot point. But you you see the you see the movie from the sort of like central character. The movie is sort of like from his point. And I think the movie did a really, really good job of talking about who got left on the mountain. You know what I mean? Talking about the people who didn't survive. And in the documentary that I watched, they talk about that, that it was really, really about honoring the people who stayed on the mountain. Yeah. And I haven't had a chance to watch that documentary yet. You mentioned it. I'm going to try. I'm actually probably going to try and watch it tonight. Yeah. The movie. So, so like, you know, like I'm saying often, actually my favorite movie of the year is, (laughs) it's an Argentinian horror movie that's not nominated for anything, but, um, but other than that, uh, you know, like I said, Oppenheimer still probably, 
by like a smidge, probably my favorite of the nominated films. But then I would like, you can't really compare Zone of Interest and Society of the Snow because like Zone of Interest is harrowing and also like grinding because it's just like this, you know, or, you know, it's just nothing's happening and yeah, everything's happening kind of right. Movie. Right. Where Society of the Snow is, it, in a weird way, it plays like a Hollywood film, but in, like, the best way. Whereas, yeah. like, a movie, like, Alive, which, you know, is fine for what it was, it plays like a Hollywood film in, like, a way that kind of feels exploitive today. I mean, I think it wasn't, like, they kind of did their best. You know? It feels like, very, it feels very of the 90s. And it's kind of sensationalistic. And yeah. Like, what what um, Society of the Snow does and what I think J.A. Bayona does very well, because he did that movie, The Impossible, which I know got some crit- criticism because, you know, that, that tells the story of the tsunami. Mm-hmm. but i know i think the criticism was they took the story of a spanish family and made them a british family uh-huh. which was controversial for good reason you know mm-hmm. um and i'm not sure if that was his cho- i'm not sure his choice that was but what i remember about watching the impossible was it just captured the visceral like put you in the experience of the tsunami very well And I think he does the same thing with the plane crash. But what he does so well here is what, like, at his best, I think Spielberg does really well, is he, you know, like what a movie like, I think, like Saving Private Ryan does very well, for instance. Or actually, or even a movie like Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. Is he uses the Hollywood techniques of, like, you know, sort of rousing you to, like, root for, you know, empathy and rooting for them to, like, overcome and all this, you know, overcome adversity and all these things, but not in a way that ever feels phony. Like, you're, like... Yeah, I mean, I knew how the story ended and I was still like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah, you're on the edge of your seat all the way through and you're, and like every death feels tragic. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a really beautiful thing. And that's what I mean about like really about the people who stayed on the mountain is that it's not that there's anybody who's like, oh, there he is with like his one line and like, oh, now he's dead. And everybody's like, and moving on like (laughs) every death means something and there's one death in particular who like i knew the character was gonna die because i remember the story and he's a major character and you see it coming and it's just i mean when it happens it's just crushing you know yep but it's the way the way he's able to invest you in just this human level yeah all the way through and yet it's got this rousing triumphant feel you know yeah but then even in the triumph like there's you know again i mean spoiler there's survivors and you know we don't even you know but you see the moment at the end where they're in the hospital and they're being cared for and you and you're and he allows you to just sit with their trauma for like a little bit i think that was the thing is that this was really really about I think what this explored way more than Alive was just the fucking trauma. Yeah, it like, balances that because it, like it's not again we're talking about trauma porn with like you know Holocaust movies or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it it's, doesn't it it doesn't rub your nose in it, but it does make you feel it. yeah and there is um there's stuff you know like right after the plane crash we all if again if you've heard 
you heard my story about this, we know that there's an avalanche and it's like, you can see like the, the mental effect that this is having on these boys, these like 20 year old boys that are stuck in a fucking mountain. You know, the thing, the thing that like, I kept, I was like, was that they continue to hear planes go by. Yeah. Like throughout the movie, and it's this thing of like, you know, are is is this it? Are we getting rescued? And then that like that well, that opportunity the- goes away. It, it's just it's like it builds it builds up so much tension and so much trauma, and then they get out, they get rescued, and you see that it's like, but this isn't over for them yet. And I think that's what really shows up when you, you you're, yeah. the scenes that you're talking about where they're being cared for in the hospital is that it's like, these are these are wounds that are going to last a very, very long time. That's the thing that I actually think uh, both Zone of Interest and um, Society of the Snow, more than any two movies I've seen this year, use sound design. That, I mean... Uh, Zone of Interest is all about sound design because mm-hmm. it, it, and by the way, one last note about Zone of Interest is they actually shot it at Auschwitz. Oof. Like they shot, they were able to recreate Rudolf Haas's house on the outer wall wow. of Auschwitz. So all the shots where you're looking over, like you're you're looking in their beautiful garden in their backyard and then you see over you you actually see the chimneys and towers and stuff of Auschwitz mm-hmm. behind, and it's actual Auschwitz behind um they were able to work out a deal with like the Auschwitz foundation or whatever mm-hmm. but it's like all about the sound design and what society of the snow does, it, it is things there's the scene where like they think the airplane saw them but then the next time the plane goes by they don't see it but you hear it in the next valley over and they yep. realize it didn't because they're searching in a grid pattern yep and then there's another, there's two avalanche scenes, one which is horrifying, but one where they just hear an avalanche. Yeah. Um, and like the one the where they wind, just, like the wind, the whistling of the wind is like a whole character in and of itself. Yeah. Well, the one where they just hear the avalanche actually like gave me goosebumps because just as a skier, I when I've gone skiing in uh, Utah, mm-hmm. like you'll hear the avalanche control people and they'll, and they'll be purposely setting off avalanches in like the further valleys yeah and so you'll just be skiing and then you hear the crack of the snow and then the rumble yeah and there's one moment in the movie where they're trying to hike up to see something and you just hear that and it's like i've heard that and they captured the sound so perfectly yeah it's um it's interesting because i just watched i believe it's on hb is it on hbo or is it on netflix it's called chowchilla and it's about the chowchilla kidnapping the three people the three people who went and kidnapped a bus full of kids oh, in Chowchilla yes. and then like buried them underground and it's uh the story I thought is of fam- doing that story actually yeah. it's a really great story but the documentary is super cool because they talk they talk to the kids and i think what's fascinating about society of the snow and Chowchilla is that like it really really focuses on this thing of like even if you survive something like that the the PTSD afterwards is so intense and like yeah. the, you know, I think with society of the snow, the, like the survivor's guilt is so intense and all those things. Quick other thing, uh, a beautiful, beautiful thing about society of the snow is that several of the survivors make cameos in the mm-hmm. movie, yeah, which is like beautiful to see. They're like standing there like behind or beside 
the actors who are playing the younger versions of them, which is just like so lovely. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I caught that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really it's 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 a it's a it's a beautiful film. It's it's a harrowing film in ways, but not like I don't. I say that, but it's not like one of those films that's like hard to sit through. Yeah, I didn't find. I found it like actually very gripping and entertaining all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Um, they also do a really lovely like they recreate a lot of the photographs that we have all. Well, if if you're me and you know a ton about this, but you've seen the photographs. Yeah, of the, them. that I thought, and you talked about that on the episode. Mm-hmm. And so when they were recreating those photographs, and it is it is spot. It is. Like there are times when I was actually like, is that the actual photograph yeah. or is this the cast? And I want to watch that. Doc- I don't know if they touched on it in the documentary, but like the way that they capture the weight loss. I don't know if that was digital or if the actors actually lost the weight. They lost the weight. Wow. They filmed they filmed in chronological order that's, and they and they trained together. As, that's crazy uh, because mm-hmm. like like the the level of weight loss over the course of the movie is yeah intense yeah like, yeah by the end it's it, it actually looks like i mean it's it's literally like like when you see chris evans in the first fucking uh winter or whatever not winter soldier it's just the there's yeah there's just there's so much stuff how there's the scene where they're talking about how their urine is dark brown yeah. and then you see it at one point yeah like there's so much stuff <gasps> there's the scene when like one of them is trying to feed the other one and then he starts like wiggling the teeth like it there's yeah I think that's sort of like alive was a very sanitized, like, oh, we're stuck in the mountain and there's this stuff yeah. that's happened. And like, now we have to eat people. But like Society of the Snow really goes into like, what the fuck happens to you when you were stuck on the top of the mountain for 72 days stuck. with no food? Right. You know, like it's, it's anyways, it's, it's a really, go and check it out. It's <laughs> great. It's on Netflix. Uh, Zone of Interest is in theaters now. Uh, Barbie is obviously And Oppenheimer on, on HBO. Yeah, on Max. Is Oppenheimer on Max? That's what yeah. I've heard. Okay. So watch those. Uh, before the ne- our next episode, my next pledge is I will watch Killers of the Flower Moon. That's my next one. <sighs> I have. Not. I don't know if I'm going to do that. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm I'm committed to watching it uh, before the Oscars. So that's okay. My, I'll get. I'll at least give my thoughts. Whether Amelia gives hers, we will not yes. be giving our thoughts on Poor Things or Maestro. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you'll give your thoughts on Maestro. I, I tried to watch it, and honestly, I was like, I. I'm so sorry. I don't care. <laughs> well, like that was honestly the things that I was like, I don't. I don't care. I'm so sorry. Fine. It is nothing against him. Like so good for you, but I. I'm not terribly interested in the subject anyway. What is it, Nyad? That's another one that I'm like I. Yeah. Another couple ones I'd like to watch. Uh, I do want to see Anatomy of a Fall, Um, and I'm actually not. Yeah, no, I'm I'm curious about that one. Um, And then uh, the other one I want to see is um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's another one of the ones that's nominated. It's the the for best picture for best picture. Okay, best picture nominees are American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers. I've heard a lot of good stuff about Holdovers too. Oh yeah, Uh, that's Alexander Payne, and I do want to see American Fiction too. Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives. Past I've heard lives. lots that's, of good stuff about Past the Lives. I, that's the one I want to see. 
horror things and zone of interest yeah so i want to see past lives i want to see american fiction and i'm i mean i want to see killers of the farm because i read the book i'm interested in the subject matter i want to mm-hmm. see lily gladstone yeah i mean I, you know i feel like i should be a scorsese completist but i've not heard great things about it and from what i understand about their focus i feel like they made a mistake on their focus but i'm gonna reserve judgment i'll tell you what i think next time so okay so 14 hours later we're back with the weirdest (laughs) thing podcast Uh, if you've reached this point and you're listening and you're listening to us on spotify go ahead and smash that five-star review button go ahead and review us anywhere you can don't forget to like subscribe subscribing is really important and share it if you like our podcast and you think other people should listen to it um let them know about it and other than that stay weird stay curious and we'll see you next time bye Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.